0: The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only and are not to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice.
1: Today on the lab report, we have Dr. Tom Williams on.
0: Yeah, PhD researcher of all things functional medicine.
1: And we have a lot of questions. Yep. In general.
0: Mm -hmm. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options. More effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the lab report. Where do we stand? While we're recording, I wish we really short next to you.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. It's yeah. not the intention of my legs. <laughs> Hello.
0: Hi, Michael Chapman. Hi,
1: Patty Devers. How goes it?
0: It's going so great today. How goes
1: it to all of you out there in what we call podcast land? Is that a place? It is.
0: I'd like to go there one day.
1: Don't type it into Google Maps, it won't <laughs> work. In case this is your first time to podcast land, oh. this is actually a <laughs> Genova podcast. Where we talk functional medicine, specialty lab testing, and integrative therapeutics and uh, some other stuff sprinkled in there.
0: That's right. And our podcast can be found anywhere podcasts can be heard like iTunes, Spotify, etc. And if this is the first time hearing it, you should probably go there and subscribe yeah. to this podcast. Yeah, because you're
1: going to want more of these episodes.
0: Absolutely.
1: You're, I'm telling you. It's
0: like potato chips.
1: You're going to want more. Right. And it- the best way to get more... Subscribe.
0: Yeah. Also rate and review. Leave us some feedback there.
1: Yeah, do that. And if you've got additional feedback, if you are overfloweth with feedback, wow, you can email podcast at gdx.net. That
0: sounds messy. That's where,
1: that's where you send your mess, <laughs> your mess, messy feedback.
0: Well, today we have a friend coming on. Very excited about this.
1: Always. Yeah. Always excited to speak to this individual. Yeah,
0: Dr. Tom Williams, wicked smart. We go to him with all of our burning questions. Probably just hates hearing from us. But we figured we'd have him on so we can pepper him with much more.
1: Yes. And we tend to think, I tend to think of him personally as what? the supplement guy. You do? I do, even though that's that's limiting.
0: Very limiting. Uh, I, th- I think of him as the HPA axis guy.
1: Interesting. I also think of him as the GI guy.
0: Yeah, Donna calls him the cardiometabolic guy.
1: That's funny. See what I mean? Yeah. He's one of
0: those guys. Uh, he's
1: also the immune guy, too. <laughs> he is. All books that this, he has written.
0: This is the beauty of Dr. Tom Williams and why we're so excited to have him come on the show today.
1: Absolutely. And since we have so many, as you said, burning questions that we're going to pepper him with. That's right. But it's really like spicy today.
0: Like, well, are we pep- This is a spicy episode.
1: Okay. All it's right. It's a spicy interview. All right.
0: Uh, I also brought up potato chips.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Are they spicy potato chips? You never know. Do they cause burning?
0: That's the whole point of this episode. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> With that,
1: I think we should probably stop bantering because we have so many questions for him yeah. that we're we're just we're running risks all over the place. So let's just stop talking and let's, start talking to him. Let's
0: call Tom. Michael, get out your list of questions. I'm ready. We got Dr. Tom Williams. I'm ready. Dr. Tom Williams earned his doctorate from the medical college of wisconsin in milwaukee where he studied molecular immunology in the microbiology department wow. since 1996 he has spent his time studying the mechanisms and actions of natural-based therapies and is an expert in therapeutic uses of nutritional supplements as the vice president of scientific affairs for orthomolecular products he developed a wide array of products and programs which allow clinicians to use nutritional supplements and lifestyle interventions as safe evidence-based and effective tools for a variety of patients. He now serves as senior scientific advisor for orthomolecular products. Tom teaches at the University of Wisconsin School of Pharmacy, where he holds an appointment with an adjunct assistant professorship, as well as at the University of Minnesota School of Pharmacy and the George Washington University. Since 2014, he has been writing a series of teaching manuals or roadmaps that outline and evaluate the evidence for the principles and protocols that are fundamental to the functional and integrative medical community. He is the founder and director of the Point Institute, an independent research and publishing organization that facilitates the distribution of many of his publications. A frequent guest speaker, Dr. Williams provides training to a variety of healthcare disciplines in the use of lifestyle and natural medicines. He lives outside of Stevens Point, Wisconsin with his family. And with that, welcome to the Lab Report,
1: Tom. Welcome to the Lab Report, Tom. Good to have you.
2: Well, I'm glad to be here and join you guys in your podcast. Awesome. Great.
1: So you're well known in the functional medicine space, and you've written a number of books uh, through the Point Institute that we mentioned before, including books on HPA axis function, GI disorders, cardiometabolic risk, and and several others. And I was just thinking, Hmm. you know, maybe an interesting first question would be, do you have a favorite or which was your favorite to research and write?
0: Good one. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, as a father of six children, I'm, I am not allowed to have favorites, <laughs> and so uh, as a writer of five books, um, it, it does it does create a problem. But uh, there there are differences. There are definitely differences uh, between the five, and um, I know we're going to talk about uh, supplementing dietary nutrients, which just you know went out in the second edition. So we spent a lot of time, and it's I guess the the newest darling of the family. Um, but but if you were to ask me, like, which one is the most groundbreaking and, and kind of influential, I think the HPA access one, Boom. in some ways, is that because it really um, was sort of a necessary correction and uh, teaching for sort of not only for the for the broad view of HPA access and its influence on chronic disease, but sort of like some of the ways that it was being misused mm. or misinterpreted uh, with like adrenal fatigue and some of these things. Um, I think the GI book is probably the most systematic as a teaching manual because it just steps through, um, sort of each step. And of course, because of the, there's so much GI information out there, it was really, um, good for that purpose. Um, and, and then I think uh, you know the cardiovascular one or cardiometabolic one is uh, probably the it's largest uh, by far of all of them and it's got the most comprehensive information in there and so um, once we're once we're um, we finish the the supplementing dietary nutrients we're right in the middle or near the end of updating and giving a second edition of our stress book the yeah. HPA access one yeah and then probably in 2021 will be the second edition of the immune book. So uh, while I don't have favorites, they, I do (laughs) like your children, each one of them has sort of, a different spot in your heart. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> answer.
1: And I have a little bit of a, a follow-up to that too, because you're right. There was a lot of interesting groundbreaking information on yep. the HPA axis. That was my uh, favorite. book. And one of those things that I, I think really was important to understand was the aspect of cortisol steel and maybe how we've kind of been misrepresenting the the concept of cortisol steel mm-hmm. in that there's, there's not actually that one uh, one pathway is stealing from the other, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. Do you have a, a simplified way of explaining that briefly?
2: Yeah. So what, what you're talking about is cortisol steel. Some people refer to it as pregnenolone steel. And it, it comes from the fact that when, when we teach the steroid hormone synthesis pathway, we, you know, we have one big chart and we show cholesterol going to pregnenolone and then going down all these different pathways. And we're, we're sort of taught or, or we sort of believe that all of these things are happening in every tissue at all times. And so, and so there's this pool of pregnenolone that goes one way or goes the other way. And as it turns out, because we don't often teach the fact that, um, DHEA and cortisol are actually made in two separate cells completely different types of cells mm-hmm. within the adrenal cortex. And there's no way to share, uh, the pregnenolone from one to the other, this this idea, which looks really simple on a, you know, on a diagram, turns out not to be at all uh, biologically plausible. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention the fact that, you know, most people don't realize that DHEA, you know, the pool of DHEA is a huge pool. It's the largest hormone by volume in the body. And if you were to take all the necessary cortisol away from the pool, quote unquote, of pregnenolone to make DHEA, it, it wouldn't really affect DHEA at all. So, um, so anyway, mathematically it doesn't make sense and actually biologically it doesn't make any sense. However, and we don't wanna get into this, but stress can it not only increase cortisol levels, but it can depress DHEA levels. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't do it through this pregnenolone stealing phenomena that, that seemed to be such a simple, simple answer. Yeah. yeah.
0: And actually your HPA axis book was my favorite because of exactly what you're saying. There was so much in there that just kind of shifted the paradigm of how we learn it in functional medicine. And in fact, because of that book and some of your research there, many labs had started to institute the cortisol awakening response as a result. And so I agree with you. That was probably your most bre- groundbreaking research. But you just mentioned that you also have the second edition of Supplementing Dietary Nutrients come out. So you literally wrote the book on supplementing nutrients. I think this is great because there are so many decisions when it comes to picking out a nutritional supplement. And, you know, we think of the Mac Daddy supplement as a multivitamin. Do you think that with today's Western diet and lifestyle, people need to actually even be regularly taking a multivitamin? Or is it possible to get everything you need from a well-constructed diet?
2: Well, this is the, you know, the age-old question uh, that we all have. Um, Is it possible? I think the answer is probably yes. It is possible. Um, if you ask, uh, you know, if you if you believe the data that we have from all the surveys, uh, food surveys uh, nationally and whatever, we realize that almost no one is getting a, the full complement of all of the, at least of what we're measuring. If we just take the essential vitamins and, and minerals, um, you know, where we have, let's say, RDAs or, or, or um, um, AIs, mm-hmm. we have, you know, huge portions of the population that are not getting even the, you know, the minimum requirements for those. Mm-hmm. So, you know, theoretically, yes, it's possible and um, a multivitamin or, or some sort of comprehensive multi that has most of those components, especially the ones that are um, difficult to get in. And in fact, the ones that are easy are like, you know, your B vitamins, because a lot of the, the RDAs and are very, very low. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, if you're talking about magnesium, Mm -hmm. um, where you have quite a high volume needed, like, you know, 400 milligrams, um, most multivitamins don't have that. So I would say, yes, a multivitamin is going to be good, uh, for probably most individuals as sort of just bringing that baseline up, but you know, not all multivitamins, depending on the dose you're taking will have, let's say enough magnesium, maybe enough calcium, depending on what your diet is. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe vitamin D might be have to, you know, might be needed to be taken separately. So there's some other things you might want to take separately, but yeah, I think, um, and for those people who, whose diet is pretty good and you're taking a multi, um, it's like extra insurance. That's not, there's no harm. It's like no harm, no foul, um, on, on these kind of things. So yeah, I think a multi is, is, should be pretty standard for most people.
1: Got it. And on that topic of multivitamins, you know, you hear a lot, of talk out there about the difference between a quote-unquote lab-derived supplement and food-based supplements or mm. food-based multivitamins. And I was just wondering what your thoughts are on this debate and uh, how how we can really understand the differences between them.
2: In short, I would say that, I I, I mean, I guess it begs the question, what is a synthetic versus a natural vitamin. Um, and there's a lot of nuance we can get into when we talk about that. <clears throat> but what I prefer to talk about more is what I call bioequivalence. When When is the compound that we're ingesting as a, as a vitamin, let's say, um, when is that being viewed by the body as equivalent or identical to that which is found, if it were found in your foods? And differentiating when those are different like for instance vitamin e a synthetic form of vitamin e is substantially different than a natural form because the synthetic form has a bunch of isomers actually seven isomers that are different than the one isomer that you would find in you know alpha tocopherol Mm -hmm. so you know there you have a difference but if we're talking about the difference between b6 pyridoxine hydrochloride and the the B6 or the pyridoxine you'd find in your food, there really is no difference. And chemically, there's no difference. Uh, And ironically, what we know about the supplementation or how vitamins work over the last hundred years has mostly been performed with, you know, synthetic or what we might view as synthetic or or, uh, not food derived versions of these uh, compounds. Um, So there's, unfortunately, you have to take a case by case basis. You can't what I just said about vitamin E and B six, when you get into folate, it becomes a little more complicated. So um, so it, anyway, so there's a lot of nuance and and one of the things that I did in the in the book is each monograph of each nutrient has this type of information. You know, what are the actual forms and how do they differ and if they differ from that found within foods? and you know what does that mean? Um, from a clinician standpoint, how would that affect how you supplement with that? Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, most vitamins that you find in prepared foods that are made into quote-unquote supplements um, are very unstable. So these vitamins are at very low levels. Minerals are at very low levels in foods, but they're fairly stable as long as the food itself is fresh. Mm -hmm. But when you try to take those, extract them out and purify them, and deliver them in a capsule, you virtually lose all of that activity because they're just not stable that way. So they're really not, they're meant to be taken in the food, but not like extracted out and trying to deliver in a supplement.
0: Got it. So it kind um, of depends, apparently. It kind of depends on the supplement and its bioequivalence.
2: Yeah. I,
1: I had one follow up question, and certainly you, I'm sure you can get a ton of this information on the in the book, Supplementary and Dietary Nutrients. Um, but you mentioned folate, and I just, it brought, it Brought up the natural curiosity that I have because folate seems to be one of those vitamins that is it just gets a lot of intensity <laughs> from because the of functi- MPHFR, yeah. yeah, from the functional yeah. medicine community. And you know, folic acid has there's a lot of strong opinions about folic acid as compared to methyl folate and, and folinic mm, acid. Mm. And I'm just wondering if you have seen anything, um, that that supports the argument around folic acid being metabolized into unmetabolized folic acid and um the and any problems associated with that form of folate
2: yeah so the the, this is a a complicated issue because there's so much nuance yeah um i actually am writing this uh, i'm I'm rewriting uh, uh, my chapter on folate and mthfr for um rakel's integrated medicine textbook it's um So I wrote a chapter on this and there's a lot of nuance, Mm -hmm. but just for the sake of simplicity, um, dietary folates have, are are like the thing about folic acid with this big tail of glutamates, polyglutamate. So the reason that dietary folates absorb poorly is because they, all those glutamate molecules have to be completely removed until it's stripped down and then you can absorb it into the body. So folic acid is a, has is a monoglutamate and s- same with five methylfolate, the supplement form is a monoglutamate. It's actually synthesized from folic acid. So so initially let's just say the folic acid in your supplement and the five methylfolate in your supplement are both synthetic. Um, the difference is is as a monoglutamate, they both absorb very well. And so that's why they have, that's why we, we use dietary folate equivalents that are higher for those two substances than that come in your diet. So they absorb very well. In fact, they absorb too well in the case of folic acid. If you you take in folic acid, you need to first reduce it. And it's it's a enzyme called dihydrofolate reductase, Mm -hmm. DHFR. That actually is the precursor before it's methylated and then goes through the MTHFR pathway. But because if you take in, let's say one milligram or five milligrams, or let's say 10 or 15 milligrams, which some people do of folic acid, it will just passively absorb into the body. Mm -hmm. It'll say, I don't care about, you know, being converted into five methylfolate. I'm just going to pass through passively into the body. And that's what we call unmetabolized folic acid. Mm -hmm. And some people seem to um, absorb this much more than others. And the question is, is circulating unmetabolized folic acid a bad thing? And I think there's a growing series of papers over the last five to 10 years that suggest that, yes, there might be something uh, potentially negative. Maybe the immune system, there's one study in it, uh, of immune deficiency or, or reduced NK cell activity in people with higher unmetabolized folic acid. So my view of this has sort of migrated. And I believe that in a multivitamin folic acid is fine cuz you're typically taking like 400 micrograms uh-huh. maybe even mm-hmm. 800 micrograms right. but if you're somebody if you're somebody with an mthfr polymorphism and you're taking more than a 1 milligram of folic acid you probably should be switching over to the 5 methyl form um, and if you're taking if you're anybody and you're taking more than 5 milligrams you should probably also be switching over to the 5 methyl form um, the reason that I don't suggest that everyone does that just all the time is because the five-month form is significantly more expensive and for the most part is not necessary. I mean, I've, I've reviewed a lot of the papers that compare the two for homocysteine lowering and, you know, folic acid will lower homocysteine even in people with MTHFR polymorphism. So it's not a, a like a black and white issue. It's a very subtle issue. Um, but that's kind of where I'm migrating now in, in my current okay. um, philosophy on folates.
0: Great. Well, that kind of follows into the next question then, because in general, B vitamins, you know, we, we hear about the, the need to buy and to take activated forms, which to your point are generally more expensive. So in general, is it is it worth spending the money on getting activated B vitamins?
2: Well, as I just mentioned, if we want to call, you know, 5-methylfolate the activated form, I think there's probably more data on that particular uh, relationship than anything else. And mm-hmm. um, but when it comes to the, the traditional ones that we think about, um, the phosphorylated B6, the phosphorylated riboflavin and the phosphorylated thiamin, um, as it turns out, the body has to dephosphorylate each of those mm. in order to absorb them. Hmm. So they are not absorbed in their phosphorylated forms. Now, maybe if you use them IV, I don't know. That's not my expertise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Certainly, if you're using cell culture, you might want to use the phosphorylated form because the body, you know, you don't have a body there. You just have cells. Right. But if you're talking about oral absorption, the transporter for these is uh, only able to transport the non-phosphorylated form. Mm-hmm. And therefore, there's no advantage from a, from a standpoint of absorption or efficacy or these okay. kind of things. Um, there is some data and i and again this is again these were all where the nuance comes in certain people will absorb b6 when you give them let's say 25 or 50 milligrams or more um and they will absorb the pyridoxine hydrochloride um sort of like we see with uh fol- folates or folic acid when you give a high dose often sometimes they will absorb it on it, it'll go into the body as is and there could be some, let's say co- competition with the activated form, which the body activates later on. Um, and so there's some evidence, and now I'm I'm kind of suggesting here again, uh, as a limit, that 25 milligrams is sort of the upper limit that I would recommend the average person use for pyridoxine hydrochloride. Mm-hmm. And if they're going above that, that they should, I mean, they can still have the 25, but if you're gonna add, let's say 50, I would do half and half between uh, pyridoxine hydrochloride and P5P. The only reason I'm saying that is because as it turns out, there's there's some, but it's limited data, but it's I've heard enough anecdotes of, of uh, people saying that when they give high doses of certain kinds of B6, they get what almost seems like a, a B6 or a neuropathy or some sort of symptomology. And there could be some logic with that. In my opinion, um, I don't think most people need to take B6 above 25 milligrams anyway. Pretty rare that that would be the case. Um, I think sometimes we overdose on B vitamins just cause they're so easy to get in there. Mm-hmm. Meaning I don't mean overdose in a negative sense, but just we give so much because they're easy to give. And I don't think most people need that anyway, mm-hmm. but as far as riboflavin 5-phosphate, there's no advantage to taking that orally, um, uh, thiamine monophosphate, no advantage to taking that orally. Um, the, the B12 is a little more nuanced, but I've written on this and other people have written on this, that there's no advantage to taking methyl B12 over uh, or methylcobalamin versus cyanocobalamin from a clinical standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I mean, it makes sense because the body needs methylcobalamin. It doesn't actually use cyanocobalamin in an active form. But as it turns out, the enzyme that, that makes the activated form mm-hmm. doesn't care what's there. It removes whatever's there in that little coordinated position. And so if the methyl group is there, the enzyme has to remove it before it adds another methyl group. It's not smart enough to say, oh, well, you know, it looks fine to me. I'm just going to leave it be. Um, it's it's a coordinated enzymatic process that can't be fooled by giving it what it wants ahead of time. Yeah. So um, so anyway, uh, it, these things sound really good. But as it turns out, when you really look into the research, most of the advantages are, uh, of these activated forms, really, there's no advantage.
0: So a lot of times I can just save some money here. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing. <laughs>
2: Right.
1: Another thing that I think about a lot is we measure glutathione on the NutriVal test. Uh, it's another biomarker, and we we talk about bioavailability. And here you're talking about bioequivalence. Um, and I'm wondering, glutathione is that we talk about doing a liposomal preparation for glutathione and is that really indeed the, the way to go about supplementing with glutathione? Is that give us any better efficacy, um, as compared to any other form of glutathione?
2: Well, you know, this actually, I, I would, I hate to say, I don't know, but I, I would say nobody knows mm. Uh, mm. that particular answer. Um, the, Glutathione, in my opinion, so going back, if you go back to, you know, how do we want to raise glutathione levels? We obviously know it's extremely important antioxidant in the body. Um, The body does not get its glutathione from the diet. So it's it's not a normal diet. You know, the body doesn't regulate its glutathione by trying to find glutathione in the diet and eating it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's, your body makes glutathione. Yeah. And so the greatest way that we can modulate glutathione is by upregulating the synthetic pathways and the precursors for glutathione and we of course we've known that for a long time um and you know the the pathway that now you know a lot of doctors know about the nrf2 pathway um which is you know one of the antioxidant sort of detoxification um nuclear re- regulatory you know pathways in the body um is you know one of the great ways to upregulate glutathione levels um in the body so along comes well what can't we just supplement it so people tried supplementing glutathione for a while there was a lot of difficulty in getting you know, normal glutathione levels of course all that are s- synthetic uh glutathione to um you know to increase blood levels And, you know, it was difficult. So that's why people sort of migrated to these liposomal forms saying, okay, since we can't get it in because of the absorption, we're going to sort of, you know, coat it in these lipids and get it in the system that way so that we can fake the body into thinking it's, you know, bringing in fats and all of a sudden, ah, it's glutathione instead. Mm -hmm. Um, And now now we've gone back and we've discovered, well, certain forms of glutathione can absorb maybe without being in liposomes, but in the end, do they really have a major impact on glutathione levels uh at the cell and actually have an effect on the antioxidant burden i think that's the question that is not yet really known um and so from a clinical standpoint you hear all kinds of things people say i've tried glutathione i never see anything other people i try it and something works so from a published standpoint i I tend to really believe that, you know, using things like lipoic acid and acetylcysteine, which we know have direct impacts on, you know, recharging and being precursors to glutathione. I think that's still your sort of best physiological way to raise glutathione levels. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, trying to augment using oral dose of glutathione, I think uh, I I would prefer to see more data uh, before really, you know, relying on that. Um, aspect. I know a lot of clinicians do use them. And so I'm not discouraging for them from using them. I just don't think that that's the way the body is normally used to regulating or trying to get its its glutathione levels.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and I'll tell you that another thing we hear on the phone, we hear about liposomal glutathione being given all the time. And another buzzword that starts to come up is NAD supplementation, um, nicotinamide adenide dinucleotide, because it's such an important cofactor. And people use it for a lot of things like fatigue and blood pressure and energy and anti-aging. You know, what's what are your thoughts on the stability and bioavailability of supplementing with NAD? Is there some type of best practices for that?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I, My general opinion, I guess, is similar. I think a lot of these compounds um, like lipoic acid and like CoQ10 sort of fall in this category as well. But Mm -hmm. we have a longer history with understanding those. I mean, when I say that, these are all compounds that are made by the body, um, usually intracellular, sometimes even in the mitochondria, and are used to regulate sort of um, energy and, you know, All these redox reactions, and we know they're very important. And so, you know, somebody can synthesize them and say we can deliver them orally. And we almost always run into problems. Uh, Very difficult to get many of these to function because, like I said, this is not the normal way the body is used to getting these compounds. Mm -hmm. So, I would say we're at the very early stages of trying to understand if oral NAD or even NR or some of the other um, forms of um NAD or precursors of NAD um will have any demonstrable effect i don't consider these nutrients in the traditional sense i think these are um nutrient like drugs in the sense that mm-hmm. we're trying to learn how how to deliver a substance into the body and make it function as if it were made in the body and um we i, I don't think we've been very successful at, at knowing whether that's going to actually work mm. um so I, I'm not a big fan necessarily of of NAD oral supplementation. I think um, the marginal benefit that may you might get um, still needs to be worked out. Now, is it possible something's happening in the gut itself? Um, it's possible, but when you then when you put it into a liposome or modulate it to be you know absorbed differently, then you're missing out on its potential benefit in the gut. So hmm. I just don't think that that's I think we're thinking wrong about some of these substances and um, I think we should be thinking about what are the natural ways to increase these internally, um, the enzymes that produce them or the the reactions. I think that's a more long-term, it's more of a lifestyle based strategy than trying to sort of mimic a drug model and trying to force the body to uh, do something it's obviously not doing um, on its own.
1: Mm. Yeah, I like that. Me too. It's getting to root cause, right? You're, what are what are the root causes of the shifts in these metabolic pathways right. that are causing lower levels of beneficial things that we want in our system and higher levels of, you know, pro-oxidant things in our system that we're trying to mitigate? So I really like that approach. Um, I just, I find it interesting too. There's even things like NAD patches. And I mm-hmm. think with molecules that are, that have a track record of being unstable like that, you know, getting it in the form that's deliverable in a, in a patch, it's always just like, is that... <laughs> are,
0: how we is doing, that working? How, are we doing this right? <laughs> really <laughs> right. come on,
2: come on. Well, um. interesting. Uh, I mean, having been in this industry as long as I have, nothing surprises me. <laughs> um, but I will say that a lot, like for instance, that particular product. I mean, that company may not know that delivering NAD through a patch makes it a drug. Um, and when you try to deliver a nutrient of any kind um, in any way other than swallowing, including sublingual, intranasal, et cetera, and, and transdermal, um, you actually make it a drug because uh, by definition, dietary supplements are things taken orally and swallowed. And, and even sublingual, using the word sublingual on a dietary supplement runs you a foul of FDA, which makes it a drug. So hmm. there's a lot of people who don't know that, even supplement companies that don't know that, um, or if they do, they obviously don't think they're that FDA is going to pay attention to them. So there's just a lot of things going on. Um, and I don't know of any biological system where NAD soaking through the skin is the normal way humans would regulate right. NAD in the cells. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> no.
0: Wait, wait a minute. Why is there a harp in the middle of the Tom Williams interview? Oh, uh,
1: my finger slipped Uh-oh. and I just pressed the button. I think I beamed him back to Wisconsin.
0: Well, the good news is that. Sorry about that. <laughs> we can get Tom Williams back. Yeah, I should be able to
1: just press this button and bring him back.
0: (laughs) Well, why don't we save the rest of it for the next episode because we have a lot of GI things to get into with Tom Williams.
1: Yeah, that does seem like a nice transition point from nutrition and some of these other topics we've asked him about to maybe go to something else like GI. I I love it. it. I love it. Okay, cool. We'll do that. So don't push the button
0: (laughs) until next time. Keep your fingers off the buttons.
1: Okay, sounds good. Next time on The Lab Report, Tom Williams, part two.
0: Yeah, we're going to ask him if you should refrigerate probiotics.
1: And the fireball question. Oh, yeah. There's more. Don't forget about that.
0: There's more. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. Thank God you can't really beam people up with that button. We'd be in big trouble. I I know, right? those fat fingers over there, boom.
1: Half of somebody here, half of somebody there.
0: You're dangerous over there with those buttons. I split apart Tom Williams. (laughs)